You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst at MLB.com, joined once again by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, September 9th. On today's show, we're going to start with our opening topic. The Blue Jays are coming. They are storming back in the postseason race. We'll move into our three batter minimum where you might want to know that Sal Perez has 42 home runs. How is that possible? We'll dive into whether Corbin Burns actually has a case to win the Cy Young Award and talk about what Max Scherzer is doing with the Dodgers before getting into a couple of guys you should know and our normal rants and raves. Matt, welcome back. You were on vacation last week. Sarah Langs filled in and she did a great job. And as I know you know, we each week get into a guy that you should know more about. And Sarah did one of your longtime favorites and mine as well, Matt Rosario. And I chose, on the eve of his Major League debut, Joe Ryan. Because I was so fascinated to see what the numbers would say before he came up to the big leagues. Well, Joe Ryan has now pitched twice, 12 innings. He has nine strikeouts and one walk. But listen to this. Last night, he retired 19 in a row to begin his second Major League start. He's the first pitcher in American League history to throw seven or more scoreless innings while allowing no more than one base runner in either of his first two major league starts. I know the Twins have been a tire fire this year, but I was so excited for Joe Ryan to come up. As I said, I chose him as my guy, and I don't think that could have possibly worked out better. (laughs) I'm so happy about that. Well, uh, well done, Mike. Thank you, should, you. You should be you should be proud of yourself. Thank you. I'm extremely just so pleased about that. Um, let's talk about the Blue Jays. Let's start with our opening topic. The Blue Jays have won nine out of ten. They are. By the way, I was thinking about this. If there is any fan base in North America who would be thrilled about the existence of the wild card, would it be the fan base of a team that is in fourth place in the American League East yet only one and a half games out in the wild card? Um, they are. You know, 76 and 62 as we sit here today. Uh, the weather here in New York is iffy, so we're not actually sure if they'll play tonight. But this feels like, in a lot of ways, a long time coming because Blue Jays fans all year long have been talking about run differential. They have outscored their opponents by 143 runs. That is fifth best between four really good teams. Giants, Dodgers, Astros, Rays. And for most of the year, the train wreck of a bullpen that the Blue Jays have put together has just given away these wins in really heartbreaking fashion. And it's still not great. Like they've kind of pieced it together with like a Trevor Richards here and an Adam Simber there. And now Nate Pearson's up and a couple other guys. Um, Simber's been, Simber's been very good for them. He's been that, very so that, was a, that was a really nice acquisition for them. Yeah. Like totally under the radar from Miami, like two months ago. Um, so it's not like a great bullpen, but you know, if they play today and with Barrios on the mound against Nestor Cortez, who we're going to talk more about Nestor in a minute, um, they will sweep the Yankees. And I know the Yankees have their own mess of problems, but it's so funny how quickly these things can go. Two weeks ago, the Yankees were winning 13 in a row, and now they are a total mess. And now the Blue Jays are like this close to getting into the wild card game. Are you in on the Blue Jays? Um, yes, although with the ca- with the caveat of like, and this kind of goes back to what you were just saying, which is you're never as good as you look when you're playing at your best, and <laughs> you're never as bad as you are when you're playing at your worst, which I think really applies to the Yankees right now, probably more than any team because they look terrible right now. I mean the the fact that they that uh the fact they really don't have a reliable reliever and that Earldus Chapman I mean did you see the home run that Vlad Guerrero Jr. hit off oh. Earldus Chapman last night? I don't think enough people talked about how damaging it was that uh, Jonathan Loizaga is hurt. 
because he's been so good this year and that that really like thins out that bullpen he's the only guy they trust like they don't really trust chapman right now and like whether you think that like he's better than he's shown and he probably is like i I understand why you wouldn't feel like you can trust um chapman right now but anyway the um the blue jays i mean the lineup we've talked about it before is scary um the bullpen has gotten better and another guy they got back yesterday from the injured list who's been out for five months with a strained oblique is Julian Merriweather. And if he's healthy, that's kind of a big deal. I think he might have been like the first episode of this season. He might have been your guy we should be talking more about. Definitely. Um, <laughs> I mean, his stuff is nasty. And like this could end up being like a really like impactful addition for the Blue Jays. Um, they're only one out in the loss column, which is all I care about, as you guys all know. I mean, the, the Red Sox have now passed the the um the Yankees and now and now would host the wild card game so it would be wild even looking at like oh is this going to be a Yankees Red Sox wild card game right now it could be a Blue Jays Red Sox wild card game um I really I've enjoyed the Blue Jays team I, I my personal rooting interest is such that they don't get into the wild card and this is for an incredibly selfish reason uh, that's because we're going to get to do the Statcast version of the wild card game the American League wild card game on ESPN two which as far as I understand is not available in Canada. So I would like for the fans of the team to actually be able to watch our show. I'm excited to see Merriweather because I have no idea what to make of him. You're totally right. I remember like might have been opening day. It was either the first or second day of the season when they played the Yankees and he came in and just blew everybody away. I remember the sequence against Glaber Torres where it was like, where did this guy come from? Here's my concern with him. He has thrown, uh, let's see, four into third innings all year. None since April 13th. And he pitched in the minors and it didn't look that great. I mean, kind of scouting the stat line here a little bit. It's a hard thing for me to say this guy who has, you know, four and a third quality major league innings, who has been totally gone for five months, is going to come in and suddenly be like the guy. I mean, I'm excited no, to see him too. That's just, I mean, this is, this is like X, we're talking about X factor here, like a giant X factor. And you're right down the stretch. You can't expect him to, I wouldn't expect him to be pitching on back-to-back days. So you also have to take that with, you know, take, you know, his impact with a little bit of a grain of salt. But when you consider that bullpen has been their biggest weakness to bring in a guy like that who has that kind of upside. I mean, granted, he could, you know, as you said, the limited innings, he could totally tank. But um, there's there's something there that really could could be a difference maker. Speaking of difference makers, they, the Blue Jays have, I mean, they have multiple, I mean, Otani's going to win MVP, but they may have number two and number three on their team in the American League. Is that right? Well, Atani's clearly going to win the American League MVP. He actually has not been hitting that well over the last couple of weeks, which is interesting, but it doesn't matter. He's going to win the MVP. I think they're going to have two and three. Like Vlad Jr. is clearly going to win the second spot unless Marcus Simeon does, right? Like Simeon has 38 home runs right now. The Blue Jays are about to be, once he gets to 40, which I imagine he will, uh, just one of 31 teams all time with at least two 40 home run guys. No one's done it since 2015 when three clubs did it, including the super fun Josh Donaldson, Jose Bautista Blue Jays, one of my favorite all-time teams as far as teams I have no actual connection to. I loved the 2015 Blue Jays. And when you think about Simeon, I'm struggling to think of a better example of a guy who took a one-year prove-it deal and then proved it as hard as he did, (laughs) right? Like we talked a lot over the last year or two about the loaded shortstop free agent class of 2021 22 and Lindor was like the main guy and he's obviously signed and now you look at it Story's not having a great year I, I think teams will still value him right Seager is had a, you know an injured year like he kind of often does Carlos Correa has been great Javi Baez has had a very weird year he's clearly the fifth guy in this group for me Marcus Simeon has now had two amazing years 
in three years and it's pretty easy to write off 2020. Like it's going to be so fascinating to see what his winter is like. I do think they're going to be two and three in the MVP award this year. I will say, I, th- I, I think there is a, Vlad Guerrero could win the triple crown. And if he wins the triple crown nah. and the Blue Jays make the playoffs, I think there's a chance he wins MVP. No, I think there's a chance that he, that if he does that, what will happen is Otani doesn't win it unanimously. That's what happens. The triple crown of, who cares about the triple crown anymore? It, it, I mean, we said that in 2012, and it was the reason that Miguel Cabrera won I, over Mike Trout. You know what? You're, well, that was nine years ago. <laughs> things have That's changed fine. a little bit. <laughs> um, I, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying things haven't. I'm not saying things haven't changed. But if they make the playoffs and he wins a triple crown, those are two big ifs. Like the odds of both of those things happening are pretty slim. You know that we're talking about like probably less than five percent, maybe even smaller than that. Um, but if they do happen. I'm saying I think there's a chance. There is no chance. I mean, I guess if Otani continues to not hit for the remainder of the season, maybe. But uh, do you, they might also get the Cy Young winner, right? If you look at the American League Cy Young Award, there's lots of names, right? Like Evaldi's been good, and Rodon and Lance Lynn and Giolito have all been pretty good. But I really think it's a it's a two-person race. It's Robbie Ray and it's Garrett Cole. There are only two pitchers in the American League right now who have thrown 150 innings, who have an ERA under three and a strikeout rate of 30%. Or better. I think those are the main things that voters look at right now. And obviously, you can get into war and, and FIP, and we actually will in a minute when we get to Corbin Burns. But I would be really surprised if it's anybody except for Ray or Cole, especially because Elaine is injured. He would have been like the big third horse for me. And the thing about Garrett Cole now is he left his last start with a hamstring injury, and supposedly it's not serious, but you never know. What if he's limited for the rest of the year? What if he misses time? Could Robbie Ray win Cy Young Award a year after they traded for him? For Travis Bergen, what kind of? Tra- <laughs> <laughs> I, I I'll admit I've I've long been a Robbie Ray believer. I've just you know like this the strikeout rate has always been real. I've always believed that like, he's been a good pitcher. Even I, someone who was like a Robbie Ray fan, did, could not have foreseen this. And we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Um, I agree with you. If, if Cole misses time, the, the path is there for Ray to win it because he already has an, He already has the slight advantage in innings pitch, so he could end up. You know, if, if Cole misses a start, Ray could end up with an advantage of like 15 innings pitched. Which, when you're like really getting down to the margins, if he has a lower innings, lower ERA, which he currently has, and um, morning 15 mornings pitched, uh, I think the the path is there. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but Simeon and Ray are free agents this year. So not only are they going to be fascinating in terms of like how they how the market values them, it's also like how do the Blue Jays potentially replace them or will they go out of their way to to to, to retain them? Because the Blue Jays, I mean, they did sign Springer this offseason, but they've generally not been the team that has like, you know, played at the high end of the free agent market. So then they're going to have two of the best guys available on the market are going to be from the Blue Jays. It's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. You know, you could really make an argument for Blue Jays in all of the uh, award categories. Like Alec Manoa has been pretty good. I don't think he's going to get top three in the rookie of the year or anything because there's a lot of good rookies this year. But I'm going to I'm going to end our Blue Jays segment with what I think will be the hottest of hot takes. You know, I'll grant most of like what I think fan base thinks come from their fans on Twitter, which may not be a representative sample. I totally get that. But I don't think I have seen, and let's say outside of New York, because, you know, Aaron Boone, I have not seen a fan base complain about their manager more than I've seen Blue Jay fans complain about Charlie Montoyo. 
And I think that's maybe both fair and unfair. He does have an infuriating tendency to call bunts with two strikes, which I don't understand at all. And he's made some weird bullpen choices, which not entirely his fault because their bullpen's been a mess. But let me put this to you. If the Blue Jays make the playoffs in this year, where they've had three different home parks in two different countries with half of a bullpen, I think he should win manager of the year. And that's partially because I don't care about the manager of the year award. Like Kevin Cash is probably the quote unquote right answer. Why shouldn't it be Charlie Montoya? No manager has ever had to deal with what he's had to deal with. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's reasonable. And this also, I mean, this reminds me of some of the like um, uh, the old Dusty Baker debates, um, where you know there was he, you know, especially you know back in his Giants days um, and Reds days, especially there was a lot of questions about his tactics in games when it came to small ball, when he had a lot of sluggers and things of that nature. But like you couldn't deny that his teams won, and he had a knack for play for knack whether whether how much credit you want to give to him or not. Like he had a knack for coaxing great years out of players. Like many players like had their career years playing under Dusty Baker, right? And so like what we're seeing right now with like the Jays with you know guys like Ray and Simeon having these like incredible years. Like well, you can't say oh this you know <laughs> Charlie Montoya deserves all the credit, but when you factor in what you said that the 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 mediocre bullpen personnel, the three home parks, and having, you know, players putting together career years, you know, he he certainly deserves some credit for that. I would think so. By the way, this happened while you were away, so I don't know if you saw it, but uh, there was a moderately big deal made last week that Robbie Ray is now the all-time strikeout per nine leader of anyone who's thrown a thousand innings. And it's like, you know, him, Sal, I think Darvish, uh, DeGrom is up there. And it's like, that's super cool. Robbie Ray strikes a ton of guys out, like immense credit for him. If I'm his agent, I'm like putting up billboards in every single town about that. But also I can't think of a better example of a stat you need to era adjust than saying Robbie Ray is a better strikeout pitcher than, I don't know, Sandy Koufax or Walter. Johnson. Also, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a rate stat, right? So it's like right. one of those things that will obviously change. It reminds me, I think for a long time, the, um, the single season leader in strikeouts per walk ratio was Brett Saberhagen on the 94 Mets because it was like just like a random season, strike shortened season. And it was like one of those weird things. I think Cliff Lee passed him a couple years ago and maybe even Lance Lynn did too. But it was like one of those like weird, tri- weird like trivia quirks that I always enjoyed. We will take a quick break and we'll be right back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We are back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and if I had to make a choice for what stat surprised me more than any other this season, I guess I would set aside Shohei Otani because everything he does is the coolest thing anyone's ever done. It might be the fact that Salvador Perez has 42 home runs, 42 homers, 104 RBIs, and he's doing it in a really impossible ballpark to hit home runs in. If you look at the StatCast ballpark factors on BaseballSavant.com and you actually just look at it for right-handed hitters over the last three years, Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City is the most difficult park to hit home runs in. It depresses homers for right-handed hitters by 26%. That is a lot. And out here you have Salvi Perez 
crushing home runs. And it seems like he's doing it like every other night. If you look at hard hit rate, right? Percentage of batted balls at 95 miles an hour. Here's the top five. Aaron Judge. Yeah. Okay. Fernando Tatis. Sure. Vlad Jr. Uh-huh. Sal Perez. And then John Carlos Stanton and Shohei Otani. This isn't a fluke. Like he's always been a powerful guy. He's always been a wildly free swinger. Like even this year, he's only got a 4% walk rate. Where is the power coming from now that it wasn't before? I'm not exactly sure. Although he has, I mean, he has been a pretty consistent like power threat. He's turned out to be a better hitter than I'll admit I I ever thought he would be. But if you look at like his last like few full seasons, in 2019 he didn't play because he had that weird elbow injury like right the day before opening day. Tom, Tommy John, um, didn't he? <laughs> um, I thought it was, wasn't it like I thought he like hurt it like like falling downstairs. Wasn't it? I thought it was like a weird one. Uh, I don't remember how he did it, but he had Tommy John surgery. Um, anyway, but like. 2016, 22 homers, 27, 27. And then last year in 37 games, he had 11 homers. So like the the power has been like there, but this is like a career year beyond um, career years. Like I, like it's, I mean, just it's also just like in the second half. And as you pointed out to me, pointed out to me today earlier on Slack, like so much for the home run derby curse with Sal Perez. In the first half, he had 21 home runs in 89 games. Second half, he has 21 home runs in 49 games. He's been insane. Like every day he hits a home run. I, uh, I just Googled this quickly. You, you conflated Salvador Perez injuries. In 2018, the day before opening day, he hurt his knee while carrying stuff. So that that was knee surgery, but that was a couple years ago. So the elbow thing, I don't remember how it happened, but he missed off 2019 with elbow surgery. And I, I think you're right. Like everything you said is true, but it's like if you look at the first seven years of his career, you know, he had a or first eight years, right? A 442 career slugging percentage, topping out at 495, which is pretty good for a catcher. Last two years, 564 slugging percentage. He is the third best qualified slugging percentage the last two years behind Tatis and Harper. Like these are the big boys, literally the biggest boys. And I just, it's, there's probably a good reason for this. He always felt like a grip it and rip it kind of guy. And it just, he's exacerbating that even more. Like it, it's hard for me to say he's more aggressive because he was always super aggressive and he's turned himself, at least in my opinion, to one of the more divisive players in baseball, I guess, because if you look at the, uh, the defensive numbers, they all hate like framing metrics can't stand him. I saw someone tweet at me. He has uh, lower career wins above replacement, you know, through fan graphs than Jan Gomes. And it's like, obviously, I appreciate the stats, but I'm not, I'm not going to be the guy saying Jan Gomes is a better all-around player than Sal Perez. I tweeted, this was before this season, before Sal Perez at 42 home runs. I, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm kind of paraphrasing. But I tweeted something along the lines of like, through the same point in Yadi Molina's career that Sal Perez was, like in terms of age, they had almost identical OPS plus stats. And Yadi gets all of this extra credit for all of the unquantifiable unquantifiable catching stuff that he does. And it feels like Perez does a lot of that too. Like people around Kansas City talk about his his performance with pitchers all the time. Is Sal Perez going to be like a under-the-radar Hall of Fame candidate? I understand. Yachty then went on and did this for like 10 more years. So we don't know what Sal will do. But it sort of feels like he's going to be in that conversation at some point. And I know the war will not support this. His, I mean, his, his, the, the 2019 season, notwithstanding, because that was like a, a you know, uh, you know, a significant elbow injury, like he's been insanely durable as far as catchers go. So, like, the idea of him being good for like, you know, another five or six years and maybe being part of the, the Royals renaissance, like, there's like, there's definitely a world in which that happens. Like, 
at this point, I don't see it, but like it wouldn't shock me if you know Salvador Perez ends with like a legitimate um, Hall of Fame case when all is said and done. Not to mention being like one of the faces of already a World Series champion and just being one of the more well liked and charismatic players um, in the league. One thing I want to mention about Perez before we move on is like home run records for catchers in particular, single season home run records are always tricky because it's like, how do you quantify it, right? If you look at most home runs in a season while playing the catcher position, the record is 42 by Javi Lopez for the um, 2003 Braves. But he actually hit 43 home runs that season. It was just that he hit 42 while as a catcher. If you do it as like at least 50% 50 of games played at catcher in, in a season, the record is Johnny Bench who hit 45 home runs in 1970 while playing at least 50% games of catcher. He also played some left field, some third base, some first base that year, which is kind of cool. Um, this year, it should be noted that Perez has 42 homers. Um, so he'd be third on that list. It'd be Johnny Bench. If you go 50% of games as catcher, you go Johnny Bench, Javi Lopez, and then Sal Perez. He's actually hit a lot of home runs as a DH this year. Um, 28 of his 42 home runs are as catcher, 14 are as a DH. So that's sort of like skews the number a little bit. So it's it's one of those things that's kind of hard to contextualize because it kind of depends how you want to look at it. Because if you do home runs as a catcher, Javi Lopez is way out in front of way out in front of him. If you well, go by at least X amount of games as a catcher, then he's like right at the top of the list. Well, you've convinced me that Johnny Bench was really good. So <laughs> <laughs> excellent work. There. All right, we'll move on to our second topic, and it's maybe my fascination with Corbin Burns. I know it feels like six months ago. He started off the season with 58 strikeouts before a single walk. He pitched about as well as you can possibly pitch, and his name doesn't come up that much in Cy Young conversations. The names I mostly hear are Zach Wheeler, Walker Bueller, and Max Scherzer. Maybe a little bit of Kevin Gosman, a little bit of Brandon Woodruff, but the top three seem to be Wheeler, Bueller, and Scherzer in whatever order you like. And I'm not necessarily trying to convince people otherwise, because I do think innings matter. And Burns has only thrown 144. Wheeler's got 188 and two thirds and Bueller's got 179. And those are significant differences. But in terms of pure domination, I've got, this is one of my favorite leaderboards I've dug up in quite some time. I think uh, a lot of people are familiar now with FIP or fielding independent pitching. Basically, it tries to take out the effects of the defense and batted ball luck. So it just takes strikeouts and walks and home runs and hit by pitches, you know, the things that a, a pitcher really can have a lot of control over, and it puts it on an ERA scale. And if you go back to 1920, the last century of American League and National League Baseball, and you look at everybody who threw at least 140 innings in a season, anytime you can come up with a list that has some of the most iconic seasons in baseball history on it, that's pretty good. So the best all-time FIP of the last 101 years Pedro Martinez is 1999. This is a top five where it's got Bob Gibson, 68, Dwight Good in 1984. Do you know who's number two on that list? Corbin Burns for this year with a 158 FIP. Again, he struck out 58 guys before his first walk and then separately, as not, not even as part of the streak, tied an all-time record by striking out 10 consecutive batters. He has been unbelievably dominant. So why are his innings low? You know, he missed two weeks early in the season with a, a positive COVID test, so that certainly didn't help. The Brewers, who have been uh, kind of crushing the NL Central for a while, have been using a six-man rotation, which has kind of kept some of his starts down, and he's not usually out there throwing 120 pitches. So I get it. Innings matter. Like, throwing lots of innings is better than not throwing as many innings, but he's been so good. Like, can you talk yourself into a way 
where his dominance over slightly fewer innings is is enough in today's world of how starting pitchers are used? Um, I think if the ERA numbers were more clear, he'd have a better case. I think that's what's going to – like if it was actually like a 1.58 ERA as opposed to a 1.58 FIP, I think that would be enough to convince people. But because it's the ERA is – well, you know, stellar is not like – way above, you know, the likes of, in fact, you know, Max Scherzer, in fact, has a lower ERA, right? Like, um, so I think that like, yeah. based on that, I, I can't, I can't see it. Max Scherzer is also at four times as many home runs. <laughs> That's the other thing about Burns, right? He's striking out a ton of guys. He's not walking anybody. And what I have noticed like, anecdotally, you know, over the last six years or so of StackCast tracking, and I'd be interested to know if you've noticed the same thing, is that a lot of time you see these pitchers who dominate guys in terms of strikeouts, but their hard hit rate numbers are terrible. Like Josh Hader comes to mind as a guy like this, where if you hit him, you will crush the ball. You know, Scherzer gives up a lot of home runs for a guy as great as he is. Verlander does too. Corbin Burns has allowed five home runs all season long. He's got like the lowest or third lowest home run per nine of the 21st century. I, that matters to me too. I don't think my opinion on him would change if he had thrown 20 more innings. Like I have no expectation that he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be good or not. Um, if you look at comparing him to like Zach Wheeler, Zach Wheeler throws 101 pitches per start. Burns throws 93 pitches per start. That's not a a difference to me, really. So it's really just those four missed starts because of the positive COVID test. We've seen this before. Um, If you remember, what year is it? 2016? Uh, Kershaw, that year, kind of had the same case, right? Except the difference was Kershaw didn't even pitch enough innings to qualify for the ERA leaderboard. So if you went and looked at the leaders, they wouldn't even show up. That's not going to happen to Burns. Kershaw got two votes that year. Uh, one by J.P. Hornstra, first place votes, and one by Dave Cameron, who now works for the Padres, and then Scherzer threw like 80 more innings and won. But I think the same thing's going to happen. Like Burns is going to get some first place support, and I might consider putting him on if I had a ballot first because he's been so good, and I just I don't think he's going to win. But I kind of wanted to point out, oh my God, this guy's been amazing. <laughs> the Indeed he has, and the NL Cy Young Award this year, it gets, it's one of the most wide open awards, I can, major awards I can remember in a while in terms of like, there are like four guys who could probably credi- credibly win it. And that brings us to our third topic, Max Scherzer, who I don't really think was in this conversation until about three weeks ago and now is very much in the center of this conversation. Did you just transition us between topics? That's, that's I did. high quality podcast. I was saying there. <laughs> well, now that you called that out, we lose a little, we lose a little bit of a... Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm uh, kidding. Um, I agree with you. Sure, that... Scherzer and Trey Turner trade um, is going to end up being a trade I think we talk about for a while because Cabo Ruiz and Josiah Gray both look really interesting for Washington, but Turner is in the MVP conversation, which no MVP has ever won it while being traded midseason. And Scherzer, since getting traded to the Dodgers, has been unbelievable. He has made seven starts. He has struck out, this is not a typo, 63 hitters and walked five. Even for Max Scherzer and his already incredibly high standards, he has raised the bar. He has been unbelievable. He has a 105 ERA. And it's fascinating to see, as you kind of said, he is in the conversation now. Like, you know, there's there's always guys who are having really good years that people want to push. Like Adam Wainwright has had an amazing year as he turns 40. He's not going to win the Cy Young. Julio Urias for the Dodgers is the third best pitcher on his own team. He's been really good. He's not going to win the Cy Young either. Uh, but I really, I, I think... For me, Scherzer is pushed ahead of Kevin Gosman, who's only been okay in the second half. He's pushed ahead of Woodruff. And 
I don't know. I would consider, I'm not sure that I'm totally buying Walker Bueller's ERA. Cause if you look at the underlying numbers, the strikeouts are down and he's just, he's not as dominant as he used to be. And I would consider putting Scherzer in my top three. Like if it was my ballot right now, I think I'd go Burns, Wheeler, Scherzer, but I'd probably change my mind like five times before the end of the season. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I mean, right now a lot can change. Like a couple, you know, if, if Scherzer keeps this up, um, and again, you know, it's, there's always the there's always the narrative part that works into it. Like, oh, does he does he pitch well enough to get the get the Dodgers um, to first in the NL West? And that's kind of another interesting conversation that Dodgers have to have to have at some point. Is right now they're 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 two games behind the Giants. The Giants who just won't stop winning. I don't think I've ever been more wrong about a team ever. Um, I give you a lot of credit for being on the Giants bandwagon from the beginning. I just like all season, I've just been like, they're not going to sustain this. They're not going to sustain this. And now I'm definitely a believer just because like the hitters keep hitting. There's clearly something that's like working there. Even they just went, they've just gone into Colorado, a place where no one wins because the Rockies are dominant at home and they've won two straight games against the Rockies in Colorado, which is actually an impressive feat. Um, So they're two games behind the Giants. And I guess with the, with the, with the Dodgers, it's kind of a nice, luxury to have because you you say like oh well if we end up in a wild card game we have either Scherzer or Bueller available we don't necessarily need to build our strategy that final week around just one guy but like I want Scherzer starting that game to me it's like not to me it's yes yes like in theory it's close but like to me it's not close like no question if I have one game to win I want Scherzer and that's not a knock on Bueller it's just like I think he's an all-time great pitcher still kind of Maybe not at his absolute peak, but close to his peak. I think that's right. I don't think there's a wrong answer here. You know, it's not like, oh, no, we have to start Walker Bueller. We're doomed. <laughs> you know, you said this to me yesterday, I think, and it's weird to say, but I think you're right, which is that Max Scherzer is an all time inner circle Hall of Famer and maybe underrated <laughs> or maybe, you know, he, he keeps doing this. I wrote last winter. So this is the final season of the seven year contract he signed with Washington. And I wrote last winter that it was at the time. Um, based on some formula I came up with, the third best free agent signing, like free agent contract for any team of at least three years or whatever. And that was before this year. So I might have to go back now and see if this year has kind of bumped him up on top of that. Like there is, it's been like three years now, I think, since I've said, oh yeah, the man is a no doubt slam dunk, inner circle Hall of Famer. And he keeps going to the point where it's like he is 30, he just turned 37 in July. Wow. How many more years can he keep this up? And he's a free agent. What does his free agent contract look like? This winter, there's going to be some bad things this winter, no doubt. But some of this winter is going to be really fascinating because there's a lot of fun guys out there. Yeah, I, 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 I think he'll get a huge deal. I think there's no – I mean, obviously at some point he will slow down. But, I mean, I'm looking at the Fangraph's all-time war leaderboard right now. And among pitchers, um, he's 41st all-time with – 65.2 career war, right? So let's just say 65. Um, among active pitchers, those ahead of, you want to talk about best pitcher of his generation, um, Clayton Kershaw is ahead of him, but Clayton Kershaw only has an edge of four war. And I think there's a good argument to make that I I, I think that when all is said and done, Scherzer will end up with higher war than him. Um, Verlander is only six war ahead of Scherzer. I think there's a very good argument that Scherzer will head will finish ahead of Verlander all time. And then if you if you're talking about that, then you're talking about Scherzer on the all time war leaderboard per Fangraphs being ahead of guys like Warren Spahn, Kurt Schilling, Mike Messina. Like this is this is the class that he's 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 in. That's the group. Like he could end up top twenty. I could see him easily finishing top twenty five all time, and there's a chance he ends up in the top like you know. 
15 to 20 in like Pedro Martinez, Bob Gibson territory. I've always said that if you win the Cy Young Award three times, that is a slam dunk. I don't care what else you do. Slam dunk induction. He's one of the few who's won it in both leagues. And he's just adding on to the legend at this point. Like he was in for me years ago. And everything he does now just makes it cooler. And it's just a lot of fun to watch. And you're right. I think that Dodgers might try to line things up. So it's him pitching in the most important games, not Walker Buehler. And that means, I don't know, Urias is your third starter. And if Kershaw is healthy, he's your fourth starter. What an embarrassment of riches to have. We will take a quick break and we'll be back with a pair of guys you should know more about. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Each week, Matt and I like to pick a maybe under-the-radar guy to highlight that you should know a little bit more about. And the reason I'm going first this week is because I can see who Matt's going to pick, and that is going to lead directly into my rant. So we got to get my guy first. And my guy, Nestor Cortez Jr. of the New York Yankees. He has a 267 ERA in 67 and a third innings and nine starts. And I find him fascinating. Really, there's two different reasons. The first is transactional. He's 26 years old, but he's already on his third different stint with the Yankees. He was drafted in the 36th round in 2013. Lost to the Orioles as a Rule 5 pick in 2018. Didn't pitch well in four games. Got sent back. 33 games for the Yankees in their bullpen in 2019. He was designated for assignment at the end of that season and traded to Seattle for international bonus money. That is a very depressing sentence to have to say about where your career is. Last year, he got into five games for Seattle. He wasn't very good and he got hurt. Signed a minor league deal with the Yankees this past winter. Coming into the season with a 6.72 Major League Baseball ERA. And he got called up, and he's been kind of a savior because Kluber's been hurt. Severino's been out all year. Herman got hurt. Davey Garcia that has been disappointing. And here you have this guy with a 267 ERA in 67 innings. And part of the reason I like him so much is because he's so fun to watch. You think of a Yankee starter, and you think of Garrett Cole or, you know, Luis Hill, Hill these guys who have flame-throwing, you know, 98-mile-an-hour fastballs. Nestor Cortez Jr. is the definition of of a funky lefty. He only throws 90.5 miles an hour. He's like a lefty El Duque. And he specifically said that he modeled himself after Hernandez. Like, I'm not going to be able to explain to you what makes him so fun to watch. He's the kind of guy you actually just got to go watch it. He will mess up your timing. He will throw sidearm for a pitch just because he can. He's got an amazing Tom Selleck mustache. (laughs) Sometimes you just got to watch. And when you think about every team wants the high spin, hard throwing guys, You got a real old school, funky lefty for the New York Yankees, and he's been successful. And I think that's one of the cool things about baseball is you can have so many different kinds of approaches and body types and looks and people. And I'm always here for a funky lefty. So here's to you, Nestor Cortez Jr. (laughs) He is fun to watch. I agree with you. It's not in in, in this world of velo, it's nice to kind of see a guy who can get by mostly by just disrupting timing and not just timing with pitches also with his delivery. The El Duque comp is a, is a really good, is a really good one. 
My guy for this week is Brewers outfielder Avisel Garcia. Uh, I think the Brewers, you know, the Brewers are running away with the NL Central, and most of the most of the attention has been given to their incredible starting pitching, which is great. Their stellar bullpen, awesome, and also on the offense off, offensive side, uh, Willie Adamas, who's been an incredible acquisition. They got early in the season from the Rays. Uh, he has a 141 rated, weighted runs created plus for 100 is average. He's been an absolute revelation for them. But one guy who's kind of fallen under the radar and has been really good for them and kind of made up for the fact that Christian Yelich just hasn't been the old Christian Yelich anymore is Garcia. Um, he's been a, he, he's always been a little bit of a stat cast darling because in the early years, he was one of the guys who'd show up on leaderboards of like hardest hit balls. That he, was, you know, he wasn't quite at the like um, John Carlos Stanton, Aaron Judge level, but in terms of that next tier, he would show up and it was, it was kind of interesting. Like, oh, this guy, he can really hit the ball hard, but he's also just had a really weird kind of up and down career. You know, but if you go way to run creative plus by year, in 2017 with the White Sox, it was 138. Then 2018 with the White Sox, it was 92. They let him go. He signed with the Rays, 112. And then he signed a two-year deal with the Brewers, and he was 82 last year and 117 this year. So he's got kind of like this odd year thing um, going on. But this year, he's hitting uh, – he's got a 117 weighted runs created plus, hitting 266, 338, 47. Um, his hard hit rate – which peaked at 43% in 2018 and was a career low 37% last year is above 48% this year. So it's by far a career high in a related story. He had a career low first swing percentage last year. And this year he has a career high first swing percentage of 49%. He actually leads the league in highest first swing percentage. Um, no one else is above 49, 46%. He's above 49%. I asked our Brewers beat reporter, Adam McAlvey for the biggest change with Garcia this year, what he's noticed. And he said, the biggest change is he's lost a lot of weight, like a lot, close to 30 pounds. Um, he said, and Garcia says that that has resulted in him feeling fresher and has also allowed him to feel fresh without sacrificing any of his strength. Um, as I mentioned before, originally signed by, by the Tigers and he was in that, he was in that blockbuster three-way trade for Jake Peavy at the trade deadline in 2013. I remembered him, Jake Peavy being in that trade and him being like a big prospect in the centerpiece of that trade. Do you remember Frankie Montes being in that trade? I do now. I remember Frankie Montes. <laughs> no, you know, I don't remember him as a Boston prospect. I remember him getting traded from the White Sox to the Dodgers in like the Trace Thompson deal or something, and then going to Oakland in the Rich Hill deal. That's what I remember. Yeah, it's, it's, I was like, I looked this up and I was like, I had no recollection of Montes. It was, I mean, this is a wild trade. July 30, 2013, Garcia traded as part of a three team trade by the Tigers to the White Sox. The Tigers sent Brian Villarreal to the Red Sox. The White Sox sent Jake Peavy to the Red Sox. The Red Sox sent Jose Iglesias to the Tigers. The Red Sox sent Clilius Rondon, Frankie Montes, and JB Wendelkin to the White Sox. Now that is a trade. Whoa, um, Wendelkin's more... pretty good too. I like Wendelkin. <laughs> Um, one more really interesting thing about Garcia before we move on to our rants, and your rant is actually related to Mark Garcia, as you said, so this is a very good segue. Interesting thing about Garcia is, as I mentioned before, he signed a two-year, $20 million deal, uh, guaranteed deal for the 2019-2020 season um, with the Brewers. The deal included a $12 million club option with a $2 million buyout covering the 2022 season. So you're thinking, great, great team option for the Brewers, $12 million, awesome. However, it becomes a mutual option if Garcia was to tally more than 1,050 plate appearances over the 2019-2020 seasons. Now, I read this on MLB Trade Rumors. 
because of the 2020 season, they had to prorate plate appearances for the truncated season. So every plate appearance is counted as 2.7 plate appearances. So his 207 plate appearances in 2020 comes out as 558. As a result, he's about to pass <laughs> that 1,050 plate appearances for uh, for the total over the course of the two seasons, which will make him a free agent after this season. <laughs> So he's not going to be like a huge free agent, but it is really interesting that it looked like, but because of this weird prorated thing of the 2020 season, he's going to be a free agent after the season. He's going to hit it sometime like next week. Um, I don't think he'll get a huge deal, but like given this year that he's having, he's going to be, he's not that old. He'll be an interesting name on the free agent market this offseason. I love it. I love that you picked Avisada Garcia. We tried, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago, we like gave our first crack at trying to actually quantify five tool players with StatCast metrics. And I don't think we ever did much with it, but when we came out with the the list, it was like, okay, yeah, this guy, that guy. Why does Avisel Garcia keep popping up on this list? And you're right. Um, I think you mentioned yeah, that you said uh, that you know, he's lost a lot of weight, right? Like he's in better shape. That comes out in the the sprint speed metrics. Like if you look at Statcast for a bunch of years, he was like the 90th to 95th percentile in speed, which is really good. Last year it was down to 78th percentile. This year back up to 88th percentile. And I'm a, I've always been a big fan of his. And it's been frustrating that sometimes it shows up and sometimes it doesn't, which I think is kind of what has frustrated a lot of the teams he's been on. Um, but no, I'm I'm into this trade. And the funny thing, you brought up that July 30th, 2013 trade with all those moving parts. Uh, part of that was the Red Sox sent Jose Iglesias to the Tigers. Jose Iglesias just re-signed with the Red Sox like three days ago. Everything comes <laughs> full circle. We are going to finish off with our purpose pitch, our rants. And I absolutely promise you I had picked mine before I saw that Matt was going to talk about Avisela Garcia, but that's okay. This is just tangentially about Avisela Garcia. I want to talk about the ballpark in Milwaukee and home runs. And so the other day, Avisela Garcia crushed a home run. And if you haven't seen it, you should go look for it. But just just listen to the broadcast of it. Listen how excited they were about this home run to left center field. Oh, man, is that one hit? Watch it fly. Wow! Booming home run from Avi Garcia. Two-run blast. Eight to nothing, Milwaukee. Just a majestic, towering home run. Yep. And Garcia with number 25. Absolute blast. And if you were listening, you heard them say towering, majestic. And what happened was... This, this home run was measured at 423 feet, and everyone got so upset by that. Everyone wanted to know, well, StatCast is broken. That's got to be 470 feet, 490 feet. And I thought to myself, you know, this is the exact same thing, almost to the exact same spot that happened there like two months ago with the Patrick Wisdom home run. It was like the same spot, the same measurement, all of it. And what happens in Milwaukee, not that the measurements are infallible and they're not off sometime and can't be fixed like that totally happens milwaukee is the world's biggest visual trick for two reasons part of it is there's so many targets out there you know there's the miller light sign there's the bernie brewer slide there's all this stuff and people just seem to think that if you hit something cool then it's a longer home run than if it was if you just hit a seat the other thing is and this is so hard it does not come across well on television there's a party deck out there and the party deck 
overhangs the bullpen, but you can only see that if you're looking at it from a side view. On TV, it looks like it's set back behind the bullpen, right? So then everything that's behind that must also be further behind that. And it's not really true. So anytime, anyway, anytime a ball gets hit there, everybody thinks, well, it's broken. Uh, it must have been, this is just wrong. It's 480 feet. And I can't tell you how much like science and thought has gone into all this. Go back to that word towering and majestic for a second, those two words. The ball was already coming down because he hit it high. And people love to think that balls that are hit high are further than low line drives like Stanton's. And it just doesn't work that way. And so this home run, the distance was reviewed. The exact same thing as what's happened there before. Everybody in Milwaukee hates StatCast projected distances. I'm sorry. Just build the green monster out there. Let's just be done with it. Put up a giant wall, 400 feet. That would make me happy. That is my rant for this week. Thank you, Mike. My rant is about the American League Rookie of the Year voting. And I'm just going to say it right now. Wander Franco should be the American League Rookie of the Year. Let's not get cute about this. I know he came up halfway through the year, and there's a bunch of guys who are up either at the beginning of the year or came up early, and they're having really nice you know, campaigns. We just did last week on MLB.com. We did our Rookie of the Year watch where we asked a bunch of our reporters and editors for their votes if the season ended today. And the American League, Franco finished fifth. And the top four were like totally defensible. I think it was Adolis Garcia was first, followed by Randy Rosarina, Franco's teammate, then Luis Garcia of the Astros, who's been fantastic, Ryan Mountcastle of the Orioles, who's been very good, especially in the second half after a really tough start to the season. And then Franco was fifth. Franco, as you may have seen, now has a on-base streak of 38 games, which is the all-time record for players 20 years old or younger, surpassing Mickey Mantle, who had a streak of 36 games at age of 20. I personally think that Rookie of the Year should be – I mean, this is not exactly the rule, but I think this is how, this is how I view it. It should. I prefer it if it was more of like a Newcomer of the Year award where we vote on the player who are like who combines the most like excitement of performance and excitement for the future because I think that like when we look back on this in 10 years, if Wanda Franco is not the Rookie of the Year, we're going to be like, what were we thinking? Why was like – Adolis Garcia, who will probably be a fine player, but not like a superstar player, Rookie of the Year, when Wander Franco had this amazing debut and he set this on base streak and he was a centerpiece of this Rays team that finished first, finished in first. This reminds me of when Chris Coughlin won the, won the National League MVP, Rookie of the Year in 2009, when he was like an older rookie who had a crazy batting average on balls in play, and Andrew McCutcheon finished fourth when it was obvious to anyone who was paying attention that like, while the stats were kind of close, McCutcheon of the of the players on the list was clearly had the most promising future. And looking back on it now, it's like comical to see Chris Coughlin, Jay Happ, and Tommy Hansen ahead of Andrew McCutcheon. Let's not make the same mistake twice. Wander Franco is the rookie of the year. Let's make it happen, people. I mostly agree with you. I don't know that I care as much as you do about trying to project a guy's career, right? Like it's rookie of the year. And I think McCutcheon should have won it over Coglin that year just because I thought he was a better player that year, even though it was clear his career was going to be better. But, you know, if Coglin had a great year that year, then I'd have been fine with that. The reason I agree with you is that I think it's easy to just say he's going to have the best year this year. You know, it's not, none of these awards for me are simply listing the war. That's a starting point, right? But it's not just write them down in that order. He's coming up pretty close on Garcia, who's been only okay in the second half, and a Rosarena, who's been, you know, pretty good, but gets dinged for defense. I really think that Franco is the best player already on the best team in baseball, or at least the best team in the American League. And I think that's going to count for something here. I'm not worried about his future. I know what you're trying to say. You want to be able to look back and not be embarrassed. 
but he is playing so well. The on-base streak you just said is absolutely wild. And he's compiling so much value in such a short time that I would be totally comfortable with giving to him. I really do. I, I, I think it's not even a rant so much as I think it is just like a valued, accurate opinion. So golf clap to you over here on our podcast. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.